Good morning. Now, my name's Craig. If you don't know me, I'm one of the pastors here at Life. Has there ever been a point in your life when you were totally discouraged? Maybe that's today. When you felt very alone or that no one can help you and you don't know what to do. Perhaps you're going through a divorce or perhaps an illness, loss of a job, financial failure, or a recent loss of a loved one. We've been doing a sermon series called Favorites. And for me, when I looked at this series, I decided to go to a place in the Bible that had actually made such a big difference in the way I looked at God and my relationship with God, something that taught me something very deep and meaningful about the attributes of God. So I'll, I chose to go from the book of Numbers in the Old Testament. Now, I mentioned this to Ross Frank this morning before we began, and he said, well, I think most people are in the book of Florida today, Craig. <laughs> you may be right. But nevertheless, you're here, so we're going to dig into the book of Numbers. And the reason this matters is it talks about a people named the Jews, or I'll refer to them as Hebrews or Israelites, it's all the same, who have been wandering in a wilderness. God has rescued them out of Egypt out of slavery and the book of numbers the Jews call Midbar which means in the desert it's a talking about the time where they're traveling through the desert through the wilderness and there comes a point where they become very very discouraged and so we're going to look at that place in the Bible and try and learn some lessons from it and I think by looking at this situation this story we should be able to learn some things about discouragement the causes of discouragement, we're going to see the effect of discouragement, and hopefully we'll be able to understand the cure. So let's pray and we'll dig into God's Word. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this gathering here today. Uh, I know, Lord, that some people came in here today discouraged because life can be hard. And so, Lord, I just pray that your Holy Spirit will uplift them today. I pray for the active presence of your spirit to do those things that I cannot do, to speak to people in ways I cannot speak. Lord, I pray for your power here today to heal and care for those who need it. And Lord, may we just lift you up in this service and bring you great glory and good attention. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When I was converted to Christianity. I, I had not really been a Christian until about 2002. So, so roughly about uh, 15 years ago, maybe 14 years ago, I was converted to Christianity. And my relationship with God when I first was converted seemed to be one of, of a great deal of laughter and, and happiness and joy. And I, it kind of is like this video I want to show. You've probably seen it before. It shows a, how a puppy is excited when it sees its owner. Now, 
The thing about that video, I like it because I think that's kind of the way I looked at God. I was just kind of gaga over God and, and everything seemed to be wonderful. And in fact, I'm not sure if maybe I didn't think that God was gaga over me. Uh, maybe we would come in here and we would sing songs about God's love and I had this vision that angels were flying around heaven saying, singing love, 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 God is love and mercy, 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 God is mercy. And so I really had this great, strong feeling of closeness to God. In fact, I can describe it kind of like a warm blanket. Looking at my relationship with God at that time felt like a warm blanket. I felt safe and secure, and I felt warm and happy. And then somebody began to preach about how God was in control of everything. And I heard someone say one day that nothing had come into my life that had not first been sifted through his hand. And then I began to wonder, well, does that mean the bad things that come into my life come from God too? And it began to have some rough times and some difficult things. And I became discouraged. And because of that, I changed the way I looked at God. Instead of seeing God from that gaga type of view, from that little puppy type of view, I began to see God differently. I began to see him as being powerful and maybe even a little ferocious, a lion filled with strength. And I almost started to fear him. And our distance, our relationship became distant. What helped me get out of that was this passage in the book of Numbers that taught me about the real character of God and how a group of people were discouraged and how that affected the way their relationship with God was. Now, before we go any further, just indulge me a moment. We've got a little academic work here so that you'll understand what's going on. The Jews or Israelites are a group of people who have been promised a place. They've been promised this place, this land, this promised land. And they've come out of Egypt, and I'm trying to get my little pointer there. Egypt's out here. They've been traveling this route through the Sinai Peninsula, a wilderness. And they want to go up here to Canaan. This is the promised land, a land filled with milk and honey and wonderful things, great natural resources. It's a place that God has promised them. But to get there, they have to travel through this Negev Desert. And there's people there that don't want them to such as the king of Arad. And so they fight them and keep them from traveling this way. So to get to Canaan, they decide they want to travel through the land of Edom. Edom is a country here, and they say, we're just going to travel through this highway. We're not going to stop and take water. We're not going to do anything. We just want to go this way. And Edom says, no, you can't go that way either. So they have to travel down this long way. And that's where we find them in the book of Numbers. We found them, find them taking this long, discouraging trip away from the promised land, away from the place that they thought they were going to go. And so they become discouraged. And let's look at this in the Bible. We'll look at the story. If you have a Bible with you, I invite you to turn to the book of Numbers. We'll be in chapter 21 today. If you don't, it'll be on your screen and it's in your bulletin. Beginning at verse 1. When the Canaanite, the king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming by way of the Ethereum, he fought against Israel and took some of them captive. 
And Israel vowed a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed give this people into my hand, then I will devote their cities to destruction. And the Lord heeded the voice of Israel and gave over the Canaanites, and they devoted their cities to destruction. So the name of the place was called Hormah, which means destroyed. From Mount Hor they set out by way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. That's that southern journey I was talking about. And the people became impatient on the way. The Hebrew word for impatience here can also be translated discouraged and is in some translations like the King James. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. The worthless food they're talking about is manna that God provided to keep them alive. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many of people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Now you might be asking yourself, what are we doing in the Old Testament? The Old Testament's about the Jews. Well, this is very important. It's so important that the Apostle Paul refers to this event in the, book, in the letter to the church in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning at verse 9, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. So the Apostle Paul says that this event we should know about as Christians. Also, Jesus himself talks about this event. In John 3, and we all know John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. We all know that. But right before that, in John 3, 14 and 15, Jesus himself mentions this event and says that he must be lifted up as Moses lifted up the bronze serpent in the desert. So this event must be very important. It must be very significant. So what can we gleam out of this? The first lesson I think we can see out of this entire event, this story of the travel of the Jews here, is the cause of their discouragement. Let's go back to Numbers 21.1. When the Canaanite, the king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming by the way of the Etherian, he fought against Israel and took some captive. And Israel vowed a vow to the Lord and said, If you indeed give these people into my hand, then I will devote their cities to destruction. The first thing to notice there is a very important concept. In the Bible, the territory of God never advances without encountering conflict. A man named William Hughes says this, 
And if you check it out, you'll begin to see that it's true. We talk about Jesus as the Prince of Peace, but he was crucified by the Roman Empire. In the Old Testament, we see as the Jews advance on the Promised Land, the enemy opposes them. Satan fights them. Why? It's Satan's territory. The people who lived in Canaan worshipped demons and killed babies. They sacrificed infants to demons. It's a place that was held by Satan. In the New Testament, we see the Christian church advancing against the Roman Empire. And again, we see Christians suffer as they're opposed by the Romans. This is still true today as we advance into places like Liberia or even a human heart. Wherever Satan holds territory, we will be opposed. And this leads to the situation. They begin to focus on the opposition and things that are going on in their life. What's causing the discouragement in the Israelites? Well, I think there are four things. First of all, fatigue. It's been 40 years in the wilderness. They see Canaan just in sight, and yet they can't get there. Frustration. Edom would not help. Now, again, to understand a little bit about the history of Edom. The king of Edom who opposes them is a descendant of a man named Esau. His brother is a man named Jacob or Israel. The Jews descended from Jacob. The Edomites have descended from Esau. Essentially, the Edomites, when they won't let them even pass through, it's like your brother saying no. They're cousins, they're relatives, and yet they oppose them and won't even let them walk through, even though they promise not to take anything. The third thing is failure. It says that some were taken captive. They have lost some battles and fear. They're facing war. These same four things, these same four elements cause discouragement in our lives today. Fatigue, how long must I endure this? Frustration, will no one help me? Failure, I did my best, but I just can't win. Fear, my enemy is stronger than I am. Let's make it more specific. Let's look at situations in our life. For example, someone who is about to lose a job. Fatigue. You've worked and worked in Europe for years. I talked to a lady after the first service who's facing a, a job situation where her employer's going to change things and she may lose her job now. And she said, I've worked forever for him. I worked so hard. I put in so many hours. Now I feel I'm abandoned. Frustration. How will I get a new job at my age? Failure. Maybe even thinking, maybe I should have left earlier before they could do this and found another job. And fear, how will I pay my bills? Or maybe it's sickness. My sister's recently been diagnosed with a, with a very large tumor. And I see these four things causing great discouragement in her right now. She has fatigue. She doesn't have any energy. Frustration. She says the doctors don't know anything. They don't know what they're doing. They're not helping me. Failure. Did I do something that caused this? And fear, will I die? Something you have to understand about discouragement in Christians, in believers. Satan wants to bring dishonor to God. He wants to do that through making God look bad in the lives of believers. The thing you need to understand, 
Satan is the father of discouragement. He brings discouragement into our lives so that we will speak out against God and bring him dishonor. You see, we live in a physical world, and the Jews understood this. They understood that the battle was not between them and the king of Herod. They understood they needed to go to prayer and ask God for the victory because they knew the real battle was going on behind the scenes in a spiritual realm between Satan and God. And they knew that God ultimately would always win when he chooses to. So, these four factors cause our disheartenment, our discouragement. Recently, I was talking to a church planter named Mario Brown, who planted a church for uh, Name Life in uh, Geneva. And Mario came in and to meet with me, and, and he had a long face, and, and he was obviously tired. He'd been putting in a lot of hours. He was fatigued. He was frustrated. He said, people aren't helping. People just won't help me. The community is opposing me. He felt like he'd made some failures, and he was afraid that the church might fail. And I simply said to him, did you think Satan was just going to hand Geneva over to you? Wherever the territory of God moves forward, Satan will oppose us. So we talked about the causes of discouragement. Now let's look at the effect. The effect is simply we begin to groan. We begin to grumble, to complain about our circumstances. And I want to be clear about something. It's okay to complain to God. It's not okay to complain about God. You might say, what's the difference? What's the difference between complaining to God and complaining about God? Well, look at me. If you're asleep, wake up and look at me. Yeah. Notice I have pale skin. I'm legally blind. Truth is, I don't drive. I've never driven a car. I don't tan. I don't. And I don't sing in public for your benefit. God, in his great wisdom, chose to make me this way. Now, let's suppose I go outside and it's a very sunny day. It's very bright and hot. I might say to God, you know, it's really bright out here. Do you, th do you think you could cut me some slack and send a few clouds? Okay. God's okay with that. What I can't say is, God, who are you to give me this skin? Who are you to give me these eyes? Who are you to give me this voice? That's questioning my creator. And see, that's the problem that happens. We move from complaining to God, and we start to complain about God. And that's what happens to the Jews. We find that in 21, chapter 21, verse 5. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. And listen to this. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Did God rescue them from slavery for them to die? Of course not. He rescued them from slavery to save them. For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food, meaning the manna. They've become discouraged. And here is the terrible effect. We begin to lose trust in God. We begin to take our focus off of God and begin to focus on our problems so much. When you believe that God is in control of everything, 
that nothing has come into your life that has not been sifted through his hand, then when you go through a period of discontentment and failure and fatigue, when you feel oppressed from every side, if you're not careful, you'll stop trusting God and you will begin to question, as the Jews did, even the goodness of God. And we may think our complaining doesn't matter, but it matters to God. It's never okay in the Bible, we see this, to question the goodness of God. And here's why. God takes it personally. God takes it very personally. It is a very personal insult to question the goodness of your creator. When you are a believer, God expects you to show his goodness to the world. The Jews were chosen not because they were a great people. They were stiff-necked and obstinate people. They were chosen so that God could use them and use them to show his greatness, his goodness, his power to the world. They were to have a relationship with him and then spread that relationship and show that to the world. Christians are to do the same thing. We are to have a relationship with God and show his goodness and speak of his goodness to the world. So the Jews began to complain about God. They said, it's the wrong way. It's the manna is wrong. This food is wrong. Moses is wrong. And even God is wrong. And God heard them. The Lord heard them. And having dishonored the person of God and doubted the salvation of God, denied the security of God, and despised the provision of God, they had brought dishonor to God's name. And so they discover the discipline of God. In Numbers 21.6, then the Lord sent fiery serpents. We're not sure what fiery means here. It may mean that they were colored red or bronze, maybe copperheads, snakes. Some people believe that when people were bit, they had a burning sensation from the poison. But either way, and they bit the people so that many of Israel died. When you're part of God's people, God will not be content with you continuing to go on complaining and murmuring about him. And he will deal with you. Don't think he won't. So in summary, the causes of discouragement, we said, now let's talk about the effect the terrible effect, and it's in your bulletin, we complain to others about God. We begin to complain to others about God, and God will not be mocked by his people. So we talked about the causes, we talked about the effect. Now let's find the cure. In Numbers 21.7, we see this. And the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned. We have spoken against God and the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he will take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. Here we see that they understand their sin. They're convicted of it. They become aware of it. They confess their sin. They repent. They decide they're not going to do it anymore. They just stop it. That's what repent means. You can come up with all sorts of fancy definitions, but it means you stop doing what you were doing and turn from that sin. 
So they repent of the sin about complaining about God. They confess the sin of complaining about God. And they pray for forgiveness. And the result, the love and mercy of God meets them at the cross. Numbers 21.8. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone... He would look at the bronze serpent and live. The greatest cure for discouragement is seen in the cross. Now, this section is very important. It's a little hard to understand. So let's break it down. In the Old Testament, in the Bible, a serpent means sin. So you might be thinking, now Jesus said he would be lifted up like this serpent. How is Jesus like that? Well, here's how it works. The serpents, which represented the sin of the Jewish people, were killing them. The bronze serpent, which represented sin, and bronze represents judgment and appeasement of that sin, is placed on a pole. When their sin kills them, they look to the bronze pole and live, to the bronze serpent. They look at this symbol of appeasement of God's wrath for their sin. Now you might say, how does Jesus become a serpent? How does that become sin? Well, when Jesus is lifted up on the cross, it is an appeasement of God's wrath for our sin. You say, well, Jesus never sinned. That's right. But on the cross, in the book of Hebrews, it says, he became sin who knew no sin. He became sin who knew no sin. So again, just like the Jews were saved from their sin of complaining about God, and which brought the serpents, by looking up at the serpent, we are saved from our sin by looking to Christ and trusting him with our salvation. By looking up to him and seeing him as our savior. Trusting him with our sin. And we are saved from the sin that is killing us. Keeping us from God. So how do we get here? How do we get to the cure? Because we all know that discouragement will come in our lives. Here's how you will persevere through it. Look to the cross. Run to the cross. Look up to Jesus hung upon a pole. There is no final failure when you're looking at Christ. Jesus lifted up is your salvation. It's your hope. It's your strength. When uncertainty arises, doubts creep in. Do not surround yourself with those doubts and with grumbling and complaining about God. God has the power to see you through every situation. There's a verse in the Bible that you've heard before. It's Romans 8. It says, he works all things for the good of those who love him. It doesn't mean everything will be good. What it means is for the good of your eternal soul. It means the hard things as well. Yes, the good things that are blessings, he works for your good of your eternal soul. But it also means the hard things that he allows into your life are for the good of your eternal soul. It means the things you understand, the things you don't understand. All things, all things are allowed and put in your life for the good of your eternity. And when I discovered that, when I began to understand 
that my discouragement was from Satan and that I had to look to the cross to overcome it. That's when things changed. I saw God as big and allowing everything into my life, good things and bad things. And I'm not going to tell you I love the bad things. I don't. But I will tell you I love God and I trust him with the bad things because I know even when difficult things are coming into my life, things I do not understand, I can trust that he has picked me. He has chosen me to be saved. He has brought me into a relationship with him. And so I can trust my heavenly father knowing that nothing is beyond him and that no matter what, I know that I will spend eternity with him in heaven. And that has become my warm blanket. That this isn't all there is. That this life is not all there is. It can't be. If this is all there is, we're fools. But we're not fools. Because I'm telling you, you can believe. I'm telling you there's truth in the cross. I've seen things, amazing things. I know that there's a spiritual realm behind what we see physically here. Maybe today you came here and you're going through some really painful times. Loss of a job. Relationships are broken. Maybe you're a little overwhelmed on how hard life is here. Maybe God just got your attention in a big way. Maybe you had a close encounter with death and, and you're not sure if you had died. If you had died at that moment, if you had been in heaven. And now, maybe you're a father or a mother and you've got children to care for and you're not sure if you're going to raise them right. Maybe you're facing a sickness that could take your life and it's not fair. You still have things to do. Maybe you're so, like so many people in our congregation, a widow or widower way too early. In this life, you will have sorrows. Discouragement will come. And you earnestly need to know the cure. So here it is. It's the same cure for the Israelites as it is for us today. The cure is simply to look up. It's to look up to the cross. Look up to the one who said he would be lifted up. Look up to the cross. Look to, when people let you down, look up. Don't look at them, look up. When Satan brings discouragement, don't let him distract you. Look up to Christ. When you lose your job, look up to him. When you're afraid, look up to him. When the door is slammed in your face, look up to him. When you're alone and sad and scared and tired, look up. When you feel like you're a failure, look up. Jesus has brought us salvation. When the bad times come, look up and bless his name. Realize that the things you understand, the things you don't understand, the things that are discouraging, the things that are hopeful, all come into your life. And in the midst of your discouragement, Jesus is your one and only hope. He is your sure and certain hope. We're going to close this service with a song, with a time of worship. And this song that we're going to sing meant a lot to me. Because soon after I began to understand this passage in Numbers, 
we ca I came in here one Sunday and we sang this song and it, it's like a light bulb went off. I understood what God was saying through this author, through his Holy Spirit to the author of this song about the difficult times in my life. If you're wandering alone in a desert, I'm going to invite you to come down and pray. We have people who will pray with you, fellow wanderers. Maybe, maybe you need to repent of your sin, to turn from your sin, to stop sinning and blaming God for the problems in your life. Stop complaining about him. Tell him, I'm sorry. I shouldn't be complaining about you. I'll talk to you and tell you my problems, but I will not tell other people that you're bad because you're good. If you need to confess that sin and pray with somebody, we have people who can walk you through that. Maybe today you want to say, I see all the things that God has done for me. And you just want to come down and tell, tell him, thank you. Just say, thank you, Lord. You've blessed me in so many ways and, and I've never shown my appreciation. You can come down and do that and we'll agree with you. Maybe today you're ready to say, I need to look up to the cross and be saved. I need to trust Jesus with my salvation. I need to say today, I accept Jesus as my Savior. You can come down and we can look up together to the author and perfecter of our faith. Coming down does not save you, but it publicly acknowledges, it solidifies what God is already doing in your life. If you feel it's too public to come down here we have a prayer room down the hallway you can go there and people will, will be there to pray with you and whatever you do though let's worship God with his closing song and let's sing it to him it's not about the quality of music or the quality of your voices it's about telling him that you thank him in the good times and the bad things whatever has come into your life good and bad you understand, is for the good of your eternal soul. And you may not understand that. I don't understand all of it. But I understand who he is. And I know that I can trust him. And I know that he's good. The creator of the universe is good. So I'm going to ask you to stand if somebody in your aisle wants to move just give them permission to do that help them so let's stand and pray and sing this last song together father god we do bow before your greatness we do bless you blessed be your name may your name be holy lord god almighty Worthy is your son, Jesus, who was slain so that we may look up to him upon the cross and know your salvation. You have given your Holy Spirit to dwell within us. I ask for your spirit to work in us right now to convict us of sin, to assure us of salvation, to give birth to new faith. You have given us every encouragement to look forward in hope. Help us in times of discouragement. Help us to look up to Jesus. And we come and gather in his name. Amen.